Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. FitLab PGH firmly believes that movement should be treated as a lifestyle, not just an activity. That's why in addition to our weekly podcasts, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, we do a one-minute movement tip or lifestyle hack video. And every Thursday, we feature a two-legged or four-legged mover in Pittsburgh with our written FitLab Pittsburgh features. This week, we have an interview that we released earlier this year on Moving to Live, our sister podcast. This interview is with a podiatrist, Dr. Ray McClanahan. If you're a runner, a walker, or somebody who works with runners or walkers, this interview should tie in very nicely with last week's interview that we did with Dr. Sam Wood, a physical therapist. Remember, don't forget to leave us some feedback or drop us an email telling us what you like and you don't like. Two weeks ago, we had an opportunity to hear the story of Dr. Ray McClanahan, high school runner, college runner, post-collegiate runner who became a podiatrist. And I know one of the things that we ask in Moving to Live when we interview our guests is we ask them to finish or complete a brief questionnaire prior to our interview. And I, when I was reading Dr. McClanahan's questionnaire, his comment was, what would, or my, his comment to a question, what is your one recommendation for people looking to go in the profession. And he had something along the lines of be aware that you're going into a profession where you're going to have to do surgery. And then I got on his webpage and I looked at his uh, podiatry practice, Northwest foot and ankle. And I realized that he doesn't seem to do a lot of surgery. He does a lot of exercise and education. So I'm really excited about part two of the interview. Dr. McClanahan, thanks for coming back and talking to me for part two. Thanks for having me on again, Ben. So when we talked two weeks ago, you talked about the fact that you were a chronically injured collegiate runner who missed even a year with injury. And I asked you why that was. And you said, I probably was wearing shoes that were too small. I probably ran too fast most of the time. I probably ate too many carbohydrates and I wore the wrong type of shoes. 
So you finished college. You talked about how you taught for a year. You went to podiatry school, did a residency and got out. Were you the quote unquote traditional podiatrist when you got out of your residency or did you immediately move towards more education, exercise and correcting the problem with proper footwear? I was traditional for a couple of years. In fact, I took a position at an orthotics lab and I took positions on various hospital staffs and promptly ended up doing many operations every week. But in 1999, I read an article that uh, you might want to profile for your audience members, Ben. It's on my website, um, written by Dr. William Rossi. Dr. Rossi was a podiatrist, a very rare podiatrist that passed on probably eight or nine years ago. But he wrote an article in Podiatry Management Magazine in 1999 that caught my eye called Why Shoes Make Normal Gait Impossible. And at that time, had you come visit us here in the clinic, I would have watched your gait. I would have put you on the treadmill, look at your pronation, try to figure out what kind of orthotic I'm going to make and so forth. Um, But if your audience members look at the article, it's so perfectly clearly written um, about what we do to ourselves in America with our footwear. Uh, What Dr. Rossi did, I don't know very many other doctors that have done this, but he traveled all over the world and he did a comparative analysis between cultures that go barefoot or wear minimal footwear versus the problems we get in our society. And when I read that, I realized there was no going back to my traditional practice um, after having read the work of this this gentleman. So he actually became my mentor, even though I never met him. Um, I claim him as my mentor because he's the guy that taught me what I teach other people. The irony of this, Ben, in spite of how straightforward it is and medically, um, scientifically correct, it's not embraced, it's not taught in podiatry schools, um, which when I read it, I was astounded that it's not something I learned in school. Um, anyway, he's, his, his four articles are on our website if the audience wants to access those. We'll make sure we link to those. Awesome. So, why shoes make normal get impossible? Then two years later, he followed it up with children's footwear launching site for adult foot ills. Then he followed it up with footwear, primary uh, primary cause of foot disorder. So those would be some extremely important papers for your audience members to read. They're not scientific papers or observational papers. It's not a bunch of graphs and data. It's just basically profiling what we all do to our feet since about age two or three. So that was probably the biggest turning point. But I should also share, Ben, at that time, I actually had in both of my feet, what I was operating on other people for. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had what is known as bunion and an overlapping toe or a hammer toe. So for the audience members, my second toe sat on top of my big toe and my big toe was curved under my second toe with a big bump on the inside of my foot. So um, the other big shift for me in my practice and why I didn't do very many operations much, much longer after that was Part of that operation, Ben, is to take a scalpel and cut a muscle off of a bone. And although that's what's taught and that's common standard of care, I remember watching that happen and performing that and repeatedly thinking to myself, I wonder if we can lengthen this muscle with physical therapy. I wonder if we can rehab this muscle and recreate the balance. And so I started talking to my physical therapy friends and I observed a lady that had fallen and, uh, laid in her bed in the nursing home for so long that she got contracted. And so the 
therapist went in and they warmed her and they moved her and they got a lot of her mobility back. And I remember thinking to myself that day when I saw that, why can't we do this for the small muscles in the foot? So that's what I decided to do. I decided I was going to embark upon my own journey based on the work of Dr. Rossi and see if I could non-surgically remedy my own bunion deformity. And so I started taking little single silicone pieces that you can buy at the pharmacy and putting them between my big toe and second toe and between my fourth toe and fifth toe. But the irony of that point in history in America, Ben, was there were no natural running shoes at the time. So since my clinic is primarily a running clinic, I would have this conversation that you and I are having with the patients and they would say, this is great. Where do I go get my natural running shoes? And uh, at that time, there were Birkenstocks and Crocs. So we ran in Crocs. I ran, I ran my marathon PR in a pair of Crocs. Um, people thought we were nuts, but what they didn't understand is Crocs was the only shoe in the market at that time that held a human foot in its natural alignment. The people that made the shoe didn't know that. They made it to be a fishing shoe so they could get in and out of their boat and the water would leave the shoe. But the point being, between um, reading Dr. Rossi and rehabbing my own foot non-surgically, um, I decided I was going to focus my practice on that. And what's compelling is most podiatrists focus their practice on surgery. So I don't have a lot of competition for people, for podiatrists wanting to do natural foot health. So that's kind of what we've built our reputation on is trying to prevent things from happening before they ever occur. That's not the system that occurs in America. As you know, we wait until it breaks and then we do something drastic to it instead of trying to identify the cause. So yeah, that's a little bit about why I shifted my focus. I'm curious, what were your colleagues' thoughts at the time when you talked to them and said, hey, this is where I'm going? Were they jealous or were they, man, Ray, you're crazy? Um, not jealous at all. Um, more of the, man, you're crazy. Um, <clears throat> public disparagement, um, lawsuits threatened. And that, in fact, that continues to occur to this day. So, no, um, it's only been in the last two or three years where the science is finally starting to catch up with foot strengthening that people are starting to realize, well, it's not Ray's work anyway. You know, I, I'm the messenger. Um, this is our body and this is the way our body functions. And people have actually studied this for a hundred years, even though it's not mainstream. Um, so yeah, I got a lot of pushback. Even to this day, many established podiatrists still don't agree with my approach. Um, and I understand that there's multiple layers behind why it is people can't suddenly change their professional or intellectual approach. Um, but I would say recently there's been a little bit more embracing natural foot health, particularly amongst the younger podiatry community who are seeing some of the newer studies and realize this isn't about Ray McClanahan or William Rossi. This is about um, strengthening the arch muscles, which nobody really talked about until recently. And I know when I was looking at your website prior to interviewing you, your practice is unique compared to other practices, which I think will probably encourage motivated patients to come to you and that you don't appear to take insurance. So somebody, somebody who's going to come, if they're paying out of pocket, is going to be self-motivated. It's like, look, I'm paying money. I'm going to give this the best option to succeed so I'm not feeling that I'm wasting my money, whereas opposed to if you're using insurance company's money, it's like, well, if this doesn't work, I'll just go use another, use another doctor for something else. You're absolutely right, Ben. That's an astute observation. Um, 
And the only difference really is who sends in the bill. The patients can still get reimbursed from their insurance company, but it absolves us from the headaches. And I, I mean that frankly, um, the headaches of trying to make sense out of medical billing. I did for years. I tried, I hired billing services. I went to all the seminars. I studied all the manuals and uh, it still didn't make sense. And quite frankly, I'm not sure that insurance companies want it all to make sense. Um, so I decided that I would rather spend an hour with a new patient, have them pay me to teach them what I can teach them, and then have them submit the bill as opposed to spend five to eight minutes with them, not teach them anything, give them a prescription or make them an orthotic and make them a chronic patient of my practice. You know, and that's not really what we want to do. In fact, this might sound unusual, but we really want people to read the website, educate themselves and heal themselves. You know, we don't want the people we want to come here are people that have complicated issues that they can't figure out that might not be related to footwear. But overwhelmingly, if you could be a fly on our wall, Ben, and just watch what has happened over the last 15 to 20 years, um, the conversations and the patients that follow through, they get better. Um, not, not from anything that I did to them, but mostly from awareness about what they were doing to themselves that then they remedied and reversed and now they're doing a lot better. I've noticed on this podcast and also my sister podcast, Fit Lab Pittsburgh, I've interviewed a number of physicians like yourself who are in small practices. And probably three or four years ago, I always would have wondered, why are they doing that? They're missing out on the collaboration. They're missing out on the, the large corporations. And then as I've talked to each of you, I've realized that each of you uh, a couple of osteopaths, a couple of chiropractors, they made a conscious choice to go this small practice where they could create their own niche. And I've always said, if you can do something and you want to be successful, do it different or do it better. And it sounds like you're doing it better, but it's definitely unquestionable the fact that you're doing it differently. Indeed. Um, starkly different. The conversation is different. The outcomes are different at the end of the visit. Um, and I will boldly um, state, Ben, that I also believe it's better. Um, it's natural. And I think it should be the starting point for any kind of foot problem. Um, what it is not is lucrative. And that sometimes is what keeps some folks from going into it. I realize a lot of people that go into healthcare go into it because they want to help other people and learn about the body and so forth. But um, as you can imagine, and your audience can imagine, the, the student loan burden is huge. And um, the cost to run medical practice is huge too. So I think there's those influences that I think keep some people from taking more of a natural approach in their practice. Um, I once had a residency or not a residency director, a professor at school tell me that if we wanted to create wealth in medical practice, that we needed to intervene on our patients. In other words, um, just seeing patients in the clinic will never create wealth. You need to do things to people. And um, I look back on that now and I, I sort of cringe that that was one of the things that was taught to us. But um, so there's that reality too. It's not a very viable business model, if you will. Um, I'll give you one example and I don't mean to disparage anybody or badmouth anybody, um, but I used to make a lot of orthotics, which is a lucrative business. And in fact, surgery is no longer as lucrative as it used to be. Um, orthotics embracing is very lucrative these days. It requires very little work on the part of the practitioner. It's got a high reimbursement rate. And oftentimes these reimbursements are annual. Um, 
Whereas if the, if the average podiatrist decides that they're going to do natural foot health, um, they're going to spend 45 minutes to an hour teaching people something that's entirely new to them and then selling them a product that they might make a $30 profit on as opposed to a $500 profit on. So there's an economic piece to it. Um, there is also uh, this feeling that I get in medicine, and maybe you've seen it too, that um, this idea that the standard of care that exists is set in stone and it's concrete and it's you know not challengeable. And that one really bothers me because there's never been a time in the history of medicine where standard of care did not keep changing and keep evolving. And so I liked what you said earlier about the need to stay curious and the need to continue to be a student. Um, and if we don't, if we close our minds, like I find many of my older colleagues, I, I think that's going to be a, not only a disservice to them, but to their patients as well. I think you've hit on something that I don't know if you were aware you said it or not. A couple of minutes ago, you said, I spend 45 minutes to an hour with my patients. And I think... Uh, I know in family practice, the average time is like eight minutes, and it was really driven home to me a few years ago, the importance of physicians spending time with patients. I had a detached retina that detached a couple of times, and I still recall the retinal surgeon spending about 55 minutes in the room with me, explaining to me what was going to happen. And I know just from having seen him that he probably had 25 or 30 other patients, and that made a huge impact on me. And I've actually changed my approach to being a consumer of healthcare. I pay more out of pocket to see physicians like you who are going to spend the 45 to 60 minutes with me. And generally what I found, even though it costs me a little bit more money out of pocket, as you said, I tend to get better faster and I educate myself. So in the case of musculoskeletal injuries, even though I've got a great deal of background as a physiologist and an athletic trainer, I learn more. So those things that used to be reoccurring injuries never happen again. So I think the thing that you understated in, in your talk about your switch to natural podiatry is the fact that you're able to spend more time and actually care for patients. Indeed. It's critical. I've also learned that people need their suffering to be heard in a calm and patient environment. Um, and I think there's as much healing that takes place there as there is in the ultimate um, outcome, you know, if they're, it happened today and, and when they're heard and they're listened to, then they, a lot of them will weep um, because it's a good feeling to let another human being know about their suffering and feel some hope. Um, I, I did have somebody say to me not long ago what you said too, Ben, which is he looked at me and he said, when I learned that you don't have insurance, I knew that you were good. And that was kind of an interesting statement, but I understood what he meant by that. And, um, and another example, too, I had a lady come in, and, and she had a problem with both of her feet, and I saw her several times, and she wasn't responding typically. And her husband came on the fifth visit, and we spent our typical amount of time talking and troubleshooting. Finally, because we didn't rush the situation, he said, Honey, did you tell the doctor about your antibiotic? She had an antibiotic that harmed her tendons, and we were going down a rabbit hole that was unrelated to why she was in my office and would never have discovered that had we not slowed things down. So it's um, plus, I, I, I don't like being stressed. I've spent most of my schooling years stressed and my early practice stressed. So um, it's, it's better for 
the patients and it's better for us too. I'd like to get a couple of definitions out of the way. I think you've done a really good job of describing natural podiatry. You mentioned at the beginning of part two of this interview, minimalist footwear. And I know anybody can go out and pick up the latest running magazine without naming names. And this is about the time of year that they're going to be coming out with these spring and summer shoe reviews. And I suspect most of the shoe reviews are not going to have quote unquote, minimalistic shoes, because that was really big for four or five years. The Vibram Five Fingers were big. Merrill was making, everybody was on it. And then it kind of dropped or ceased. And I, I do want to go on record saying that I walked around in Vibram Five Fingers and tried to run in and couldn't run in them. Just wasn't enough cushioning for me that I hope we can talk about. But I am a firm believer in footwear, such as ultra footwear. And it's about all I wear when I run and when I walk simply because it's more comfortable, but what exactly is a minimalist footwear? Yeah. Um, honestly, Ben, I really don't prefer that term. In fact, 38 researchers all got together. I was part of the group from around the world and we, we tried to standardize what minimal shoes mean. Uh, because what I learned was the shoe companies apparently are the ones that get to define if they're minimal or not. So you, you could have a shoe like a Hoka 1-1 that might describe themselves as minimal because they might be lightweight or they might have less of a heel-to-toe drop or these kinds of things. So we do have the Minimalist Index, which is published. Whenever we do a shoe review on our website, we always do the Minimalist Index as well, which basically for your audience members, Ben, is a measure of the five parameters of minimal footwear. Before we go into that, just let me say that I prefer the term natural footwear because most minimal footwear in the market still does not hold the toes in a natural configuration. There's a ton of minimal footwear out there that still has a pointed narrow toe box because it's light, because it's thinner. And, um, they can call it minimal, but it's still not natural. So, um, and we distinguish between the two whenever we do a shoe review. We've got correct toes approved footwear. We've got natural footwear that might be better, but still not let you spread your toes. Um, but Really, the, the things we're looking at when we're trying to describe a minimal shoe are, is there an offset from the heel to the front of the foot? Is there a drop? So ideally, a natural state, we would be zero drop. Is there a stack height? And for your audience members, how, how fluffy and thick is the, is the sole? And these days, whereas the industry went minimal, as you indicated a few years back, now a lot of the companies tend to be going maximal. So they're adding a lot of fluff to the shoe. Um, Weight is a significant uh, contributor. There have been some studies showing the heavier the shoe, the more oxygen you're consuming and the more energy you're, you're, you're using. Um, so what, let's see, stack height, heel to toe drop, flexibility. Um, several podiatrists came out years ago and, and shared their opinions that shoes needed to be stiff and not bend in the middle or that was gonna cause plantar issues. So, so we have looked at minimalism and we've tried to quantify it for people because it, there's, no, there's no definition out in the running shoe world. Um, so my term I prefer is natural, meaning that shoe is flat from the heel all the way out to the ends of the toes. And most specifically, it's widest at the ends of the toes. And this is something to really um, get really detailed on with your audience members because plenty of people use the term wide toe box and feel like that's sufficient to have naturally positioned feet. 
you can buy a wide toe box that gets wider at the ball of the foot, but you will still not be naturally positioned. So for your audience members, a wide toe box shoe is the letter system, the D, E, E, double E, triple E. Um, to be naturally positioned, you want your shoe to be widest at the ends of the toes, like a like an ultra or some or Vibram Five Fingers or some of those others. Um, and even though they're falling out of popularity, mostly because people made foolish mistakes and did way too much in them too soon and hurt themselves. There's still a band of us out there that are still having remarkable success teaching people this stuff and using natural footwear. And I know you have some links on your website that will link to the website of shoes that you recommend or various brands. It's not just ultra. I just happened to mention that because that's what one of the ones I've had uh, success with for me. I'm curious uh, what your advice is to people that you see and kids who are playing sports like soccer and football, how do they get cleats that are natural footwear? Do they have those? They don't have those. And um, <clears throat> my younger daughter about four or five years ago decided she wanted to play soccer and we've kept her in healthy footwear. So her feet are nice and healthy. They look just like they should. Toes are nice and spread out wide. Well, we shopped around and, and we got the widest we could get. And unfortunately, we ended up buying them a little bit long to get a little bit more width, which is a strategy parents could do. But ultimately, she got ingrown toenails on both of her big toes. Um, so we sat down on our driveway at home and we turned on the video camera and we shot a video. And we, we basically produced that video for athletic shoemakers to understand the correlation, the direct one-to-one -one causation of their shoe design with the foot problems that come into my office. So ultimately what we try to do for parents, and we encounter this all the time, <clears throat> we have them go out into the shoe store and find the widest one that they can. And for your audience members, the best way to fit footwear is to pull the little removable sock liner that comes out of the shoe when you're in the store and have, have the foot placed upon that. And when you see how the foot lines up with the sock liner, you can also estimate how the foot's going to line up with the upper part of the shoe. So if the foot is spilling off of the sock liner, the upper part of the shoe is going to deform the foot. So what we end up doing is get the widest shoe possible. We leave the sock liner out. We take a scalpel to it, and we make multiple cuts all around the toe box of the shoe to try to let the toe spread out more. And we relace it differently. Um, I predict, Ben, in our lifetime, there will be athletic footwear for most of our activities that are natural. Um, we're just not there yet. We're not there with soccer. We're, we're getting there with skiing. We're getting there with cycling. We're definitely there with walking and running. We're not there with football. We're getting there with basketball. Um, but as my designer mentioned one day in a conversation, I was very passionate about getting this information out to everybody and trying to get everybody well. And why aren't people paying attention? Why aren't the podiatrists excited about this? And he looked at me and he said, Ray, a freight liner is not on a dime. In other words, when those big ships out in the ocean turn around, it's not, nothing doesn't just steer the wheel. It's a big, huge process. And he was likening that to the process we need to go through in America in terms of our awareness about our foot health and what we put on our feet. <clears throat> I know that uh, we're doing this interview in the middle of January, so there are a bunch of spring marathons coming up, and I know I've seen around the Pittsburgh area all kinds of training groups are coming up, and somebody's listening to this or somebody wants to run a marathon. 
how do they go around or, or even a 10 K or a five K, how do they go around finding the right running shoes? Because from what I see, the running shoe industry is a big fashion industry and many people buy the shoe based on the color or based on the brand and not how it fits. They do. Um, or worse yet, as you alluded to earlier on in the conversation, or maybe in the show conversation about going to the shoe store and being um, inadvertently limited by the 18-year-old wave store clerk who's basically telling Abraham what the shoe company told them to tell the road. So um, this is a huge problem. In fact, we started a running shoe store inside of our clinic because we got so frustrated with sitting down with our folks, teaching them these concepts, having them go out into the community, only to come back to tell us that either the shoe store told us that we were crazy and they're going to break their metatarsals and not to follow our instructions or the shoe store didn't even stock a natural shoe um, or they didn't understand what we taught them and bought a shoe that was not like what we recommended. So we actually stock shoes here, but it's a huge problem. Um, and this is also part of why we screen people because if people are young enough and I experienced this in my own body, Ben, we can do terrible things to our feet for many years and our feet will put up with it. Um, quarter of all the body's bones are in our feet, most of the joints. And so they're highly compensatory. So you can lift the heel, you can tilt the foot on the side, you can lift the toes in the air, you can pinch the toes together. The brain and the feet are still pretty smart. They're still going to try to meaningfully move us forward. But predictably at a certain point, usually it's fourth or fifth decade female will come into the office and one foot hurts and they've been wearing their fashion running shoes and their fashion shoes. They don't know why they're hurt. They didn't get traumatized. They didn't, they didn't change anything. They didn't overtrain. And, and that's when I have the conversation with them about your body's done compensating. It can't adapt anymore. You have so altered your natural anatomy that you're dysfunctional. And the only way you're going to get better is either if we numb away the pain, which isn't function, or we direct you back in the, in the direction of natural foot health. Um, but yeah, it's a huge, huge problem for people to, well, not only that, Ben, we, we comment around the clinic frequently about how often we have to re revisit the education. In other words, we'll, we'll teach people this, they'll go get their ultra, they'll do their rehab, they'll run their race and their pain goes away and they'll kind of start gravitating back to some of their old habits and some of their old footwear. And we scratch our heads. And, uh, but I guess it's like anything else. Like for me, I'm not a technology guy. And so if somebody teaches me how to do something with technology, that's straightforward to them. I, I might have to have them tell me two or three or four times the very same thing that is simple to them, but is complicated to me. So I think of all the things that I want your audience members to take away from this show is that there is no one single factor that is more important to having healthy feet than, than choosing the right footwear. And so likely, as we're, as we're mentioning, they're probably not going to get it in the shoe store unless they go visit somebody like Dr. Mark Kukazella at Two Rivers Treads. They don't sell any conventional shoes, whereas most shoe companies sell mostly conventionals. and They might have a couple of more minimal shoes, but it's not mainstream anymore. Um, and then certainly we encourage people to visit our site and, and look over our material as a way to empower them when they go to buy their shoes. People are looking at these shoes and I, I know the first comment that many people are going to make is they're clown shoes or they look weird. 
How do you combat that with your patients, especially you mentioned uh, women because they are more likely than men to wear fashionable shoes every day? Yeah, we were talking about this last night at dinner. Um, and I, I, I've had this conversation so often that I, that I put together a lousy joke. Um, you wonder why clowns are always smiling because their feet are happy. <laughs> so whether or not it's clown shoe, I hear duck foot, I hear monkey foot, I hear all kinds of terms. However, um, what I want your audience to think about, Ben, is that's actually how our foot is supposed to look. It's only because we've misshapen it for centuries that we're used to this new normal. And that's one of the things that Dr. Rossi taught me that I appreciate. He made the distinction between what's natural and what's normal and how we do something that's unnatural, like wearing fashion footwear, but it becomes our new normal. And so everybody does it. Our feet look like each other's. So we don't really know that we're doing something harmful until we break. And then unfortunately, when many of us break, we go to the conventional podiatrist and we don't get the shoe conversation. We get um, stop running. It's hard on your body or you need this orthotic or. um, So, yeah, the shoe piece is huge. And if we can make that any more clear for your audience, we'd love to do that. I know I've interviewed another guest in the podcast, Dr. Gary Chimes, who talks about how he likes to go to conferences and talk to other physicians because it allows them to calibrate his thought processes. It sounds like that most of us with our footwear, we look around, it's like, well, if you look like me, I look like you. We lose our calibration of what the proper look is. We totally do. And we also lose calibration with what proper feel is like, Ben. In fact, one of the things that's universal, we heard it today, we hear it almost every day, and maybe you've experienced this or will experience this, when people gravitate towards healthy natural footwear and give it some time and their toes spread out and maybe it's a more flexible, minimal shoe and so their body works a little bit better and their brain perceives the proprioception a little bit better, most of those people will no longer be able to tolerate the shoes that they used to wear. We hear about it daily. One of the patients said it today. She said, I used to wear dance clothes and I can't even get them on anymore. And I've heard that so often too, that I joke with the patients. I say, well, my job is done. Just listen to your feet. But I realize it's not, not that simple. Um, but that's one of the things that universally happens. Nobody comes back and asks for their pointed toed shoes. A couple of them say, well, I want to go to the ballet or the opera or the movie or whatever. Can I dress up or the wedding? And and we, we encourage people to dress up what we, <clears throat> from time to time, what we don't encourage people to do is to play sports with fashion shoes. <clears throat> However, most athletes in America are doing that right now and they don't know that, you know, they're buying their, they're buying their soccer shoe and their football shoe and their basketball shoe from reputable brands who sponsor the best athletes in the world. And I've got Adidas and Nike right here in my backyard. So when my patients come in who either work for those companies, sponsored for those companies, or wear those companies' footwear, they look at me and they go, how in the world could you be correct when all these other voices here are saying this is correct? So it's, um, it's a bit of a conundrum that we're still stuck in, um, and I think we've got a lot of work to do to get our society out of this love affair with fashion in our athletic shoes. Again, I don't know if I said this earlier, Ben, I'm not opposed to fashion. I'm opposed to fashion in athletic footwear. That's, that's what I'm opposed to. I know you mentioned a while back that your definition of an athlete is anybody who does something involving movement that they enjoy. 
with these uh, natural shoes, would your recommendation for all of your patients that you see is that they transition to these or are there some patients that because of specific problems, they shouldn't transition to the natural footwear? Yeah, there's very, there's very limited number of people that we would not want to transition to natural footwear. Um, and th those would be people who have things like diabetes or neurologic disorders where they have neuropathy and they can't feel their feet. Some, some of those folks in a truly minimal shoe might damage themselves and not know they do it because they can't feel. But overwhelmingly, um, even that person would benefit still from a zero drop shoe, but just with more stack height. What people want to think about is they, no matter what their foot condition, they don't want to continue to allow their shoes to hold their feet in the conventional position where the heel is higher than the front and the ends of the toes are higher than the ball. That's the shoe most podiatrists are recommending and most podiatrists are putting orthotics into. The irony of that is if your audience members look at a video we put together, I think it's called pronation versus overpronation. We point out that shoes that are constructed like that actually encourage more pronation and then they build themselves up to be stiffer to try to counteract the pronation. Um, Two wrongs don't make a right. So no matter what, people should be in flat shoes. Everybody needs to spread their toes. Um, and some people need orthotics, but even those people that need orthotics need them in a flat shoe. So yes, there's certain principles that apply to every foot, um, no, matter what, no matter what the foot type. And I know there are a lot of, not compared to other shoes, but quite a number of, depending on what the company you talk about that makes natural shoes, quite a number of models. So somebody's listening to this and they're going, okay, I've kind of thought about it. I want to take the step and gradually transition to this. How do they figure out if they don't live near a place like you or the place in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, how do they figure out what kind of natural shoe or what model of natural shoe do I get? Yeah, it's somewhat difficult. I think the best thing I could recommend, Ben, would be to get online and try to educate yourself. And that can also be a slippery slope because there's not only credible information out there, there's um, information that's not credible. So the internet can sometimes be a blessing or a curse. If they happen to have a natural footwear store close by, that would be a good option too. Um, the other option we offer here at the clinic is peripheral consults. So if somebody wants to talk on the phone with one of our doctors or somebody wants to Skype with one of our doctors and actually it's not a medical exam, you know, we're not giving them a diagnosis, but we can talk through some of those issues and kind of give them some, some framework around how do they choose that shoe for them. <clears throat> There's also this concept of a transition shoe, Ben, which is, Let's pretend people are in the Brooks Beast or the Brooks Ariel, one of the most built up, heavy, thick, stiff shoes, and they want to transition to a more natural shoe. It would probably be wise and safe for them to go to something like an Ultra and then work their way down to like a Lems or a Vivo Barefoot or a Vibram Five Fingers. So one of the worst things that people can do, and they did a lot of this when minimalism was really hot, was go from a huge structured shoe to a very, very minimal shoe without the sufficient time. And you know, as a coach and a trainer, the body needs a predictable amount of time to adapt. Um, so a lot of these people, I think that make that transition too quickly are having a training error as the cause for their injury, as opposed to something's wrong with the shoe. 
In fact, if you critically evaluate some of the studies that were done on those shoes, they were very limited studies that were done for very short periods of time. There was no transition describing bone marrow edema and so forth. And um, so I think a lot of people got scared away from the very thing that could have helped them, you know, and, and now, as we indicated, people tend to want to go to the big, cushy, fluffy, fluffy shoes. So um, I would recommend that uh, our website is a good option for foot, foot health education and footwear education. And then um, the peripheral consult if somebody's still really confused. And then the sock liner test, which we talked about before, is really critical, too, in terms of once they think they find that shoe that's going to be natural and healthy, they'll want to pull that sock liner out and stand on it. If the shoe doesn't have a sock liner, like some of the Vivos, you can turn the opposite shoe upside down and stand on the sole and look at where your foot sits on the sole, uh, the sole being a little bit wider than the upper, and you can kind of guesstimate there, too. Um, but your audience members can certainly reach out to us as well, and we'd be happy to help. I want to talk a little bit about something called correct toes because I mentioned the lady who recommended I contact you and she said, he's the guy who invented correct toes. So what are correct toes and what are they designed for? Who should be using them? Yeah. So when I was finishing up my surgical residency, I think I might've mentioned earlier, I had uh, what is what is called a bunion and a hammer toe or a bunion and an overlapping toe. So for our audience members, this, my second toe on both of my feet sat on top of my big toe. And was this due predominantly to wearing shoes that were too narrow and too small for growing 100%, up? 100% since age three or four. I look back on my baby pictures, my kid pictures. I had healthy shoes for one year of my life. Ever up until, well, podiatry residency, I wore them too small. They were pointed. I ran miles and miles around the track and pointed spikes, which are even narrower. Um, so I'm learning how to do operations, but I don't think I want to have one of these operations on myself because, as I shared earlier, we're cutting through the adductor halysis and cutting through bones. And I remember, as I shared earlier, thinking about whether or not physical therapy principles can apply. So um, I started putting these little single silicone splints that you can get at the pharmacy in between my big toe and second toe and in between my fourth toe and fifth toe because my fifth toe was completely under my fourth toe. Couldn't even see it. And that's common. Most people looking at the at their fifth toe in the audience will notice that it's not straight. It's curled and it's probably under their fourth toe. And that's, again, an unnatural new normal that we have made. But I started noticing that my big toe was moving out from under my second toe. My second toe was getting straighter. Chronic knee and back pain that I had was starting to feel better. But we had Crocs and Birkenstocks. So there weren't really good options for people to run and hike. Although we did. We, we ran in Crocs. But Every time we'd run and our foot would start to perspire, these silicone things would squirt out from between our toes and they wouldn't stay in place. This is also before toe socks. So now there's all kind of companies that you can have more like a glove for your toes as opposed to the mitten, which is also good for sensory awareness. Um, but they kept moving around. And so I was visiting with the designer one day and I said, can you make one piece where all of these are all stuck together so that they're not going to move when we're out doing our running. And we did, and we made several mistakes earlier on. We made them too hard, and we made some of the spaces in between the smaller toes too big, and I actually ruptured the collateral ligament on my fourth toe, <laughs> making a mistake in the process, but learned a lot of lessons, made the necessary mistakes, and, hope, and uh, 
re revisited our modifications and molds several times to come up with what we have now, which is four sizes. Um, as you can imagine, there's all kinds of feet out in the world. There's tall men with little tiny skinny toes. There's short women with big pudgy large toes. So really what Correct Toes is, Ben, is a device, a non-surgical device that we progressively use in increasing increments to guide human feet back into natural alignment, which is widest at the ends of the toes. Now that in and of itself is brand new information to most people that come visit us. Most people don't realize their feet are not supposed to be widest at the ball. Most people don't, don't realize that if they grew up in Africa where I grew up or some parts of South America or Asia where they go barefoot or wear flip-flops, bunions are unheard of over there. Um, they just don't do to their feet what we do to our feet. So um, that's the backstory on correct toes. I, I sent a whole bunch of samples out to podiatrists early on, and they just really weren't that excited about it. And so I eventually found my partners in physical therapy, chiropractic, naturopathy, acupuncture, strength and conditioning coaches, athletic trainers, yoga, body workers, et cetera, not so much in the surgical community. Um, more recently, as the studies have become more robust and solid on the effects of strengthening of the arch muscles, have some of the surgeons also come on board a little bit, especially the younger ones. And these are available without a prescription, is that correct? They are. However, if your doctor wants to prescribe them, they can be billed to insurance. And then somebody picks up these and they gradually progress with how long they wear them. I think I seem to remember when I picked up a pair, it came with a sheet that gave a uh, schedule on how to adapt to wearing them. It does. Yeah. We generally start out with about 30 minutes the first day, go to an hour the next day, hour and a half the next day. Um, there are multiple modifications that can be done because as I mentioned, people's toes are different. They're unique. So there's many things that we could do to try to make it fit better. And if people are going to get new shoes, the better thing to do would be to purchase correct toes and then go buy new shoes. That way they can put their foot into its natural position before they start stepping on the sock liners. And if they can find shoes like Ultra and some of the others on our website that their whole foot is on the sock liner when they've got correct toes on, then they're going to have healthy feet. Um, so it's a gradual break-in process. Um, we have a couple of warnings, obviously, if people don't have good circulation to their feet, those people have to be very careful. People that can't feel their feet, um, we don't want them to wear them, um, quite frankly, because we don't want them to create a wound that they wouldn't be aware of and then get an infection. Um, so unless somebody grew up abroad or happens to be the rare American that decides they're not going to cripple their feet, this is something that just about everybody can benefit from. And how long do they have to wear them? For the rest of their life? Um, well, it kind of depends. So if, if the moms and dads listening to this happen to go on the website, and look at some of the stuff about fitting kids footwear, though, if they fit their kids into natural footwear, their kids will never need correct toes. And that's best case scenario. However, most people start looking for correct toes when they've got a problem. So that's when they go online and maybe look for a natural foot remedy. So the answer to your question, Ben, depends upon two things, primarily three things, depends upon their soft tissue, um, the condition of their soft tissue. So in other words, if they're a 75 year old lady who has been in bad shoes her whole life and she's got very little mobility, she's gonna take a long time to rehab effectively. Versus if we have a 45-year-old woman who's willing to change her shoes, has good flexibility. In other words, we can manually reduce the bunions and the hammer toes, um, and she can choose natural footwear. 
um, that person's likely looking at several years, which is another downside of this, of this program. It's not a quick fix. It's like braces for your teeth or like these new Invisalign things that we put in people's jaws and palates. Um, for my own feet, when I had my overlapping toe, it took me at least three and a half years before I could eventually take my correct toes off and relax and my toes didn't automatically start creeping back to their deformed position. So if the audience can understand that it took usually decades to get their feet in those configurations, it's likely to take many years to reverse them. And then you've got the people that want to wear fashion shoes during the day, but then they want to rehab their foot at night. And um, they, they generally don't make gains. They generally end up plateauing. And I see them quite a bit more as opposed to the people that take this seriously, start taking their shoes off, get healthy footwear. I see them on the mountaintop. I see them at the trailhead. I see them at the 5K, as opposed to in my office, you know, talking to me about what hurts. We're talking with Ray McClanahan. He is a podiatrist. He is a natural podiatrist. He's talked about getting people into natural footwear. We've talked a little bit about correct toes, which is something that people can purchase to help starting to correct their feet into a more natural position. He's mentioned a couple times, and I've been remiss and haven't mentioned or uh, asked him more about it. That sounds like two steps. It found, sounds like the final step is rehabilitation or specific exercises. Obviously, if they live in the Northwest, they can come and see you somebody who's wondering, how do I find the exercises for my feet? I know my personal trainer can give me exercises for the big muscles. Where do I find exercises for my feet? Yeah, we have a lot of resources on the website. We just did a new video, five best foot exercises. However, before we get your audience excited about exercises, there's a couple of screening tests that we like people to do before we start to get them stronger. And one of those is checking calf flexibility or calf mobility. Um, there's also a lecture on the website called Shape of Strength for, for the audience members that really want to geek out on this stuff. It's a 20-minute video. It talks about the screening tests. It talks in great depth about the exercises, the strengthening work to do. We give references for the studies that have been done documenting all this stuff. Um, so if you've got a person who wants to get going on this program, first step would be to purchase their correct toes compatible size. Second step would be for them to find natural footwear that lets them to wear correct toes. And quite frankly, Ben, people can actually stop there if they'd like, because quite frankly, if you position your foot naturally and you don't have limitations in mobility, your feet will rehab themselves just by being in natural position. However, if the calf muscles are tight, we obviously want to mobilize calf structures before we try to strengthen plantar arch structures. Correspondingly, another screening test that you might want to do is when I have people in the office, I, I check whether or not they have metatarsal, metatarsal phalangeal or toe flexibility. Can they flex their toes? If they can't flex their toes, they also can't strengthen their arch muscles. So we would begin the process of doing what we call the toe extensor stretch before we would begin strengthening the plantar arch muscles. So if they got their correct toes, they got their footwear, they're slowly transitioning, they want to accelerate their recovery, then they can dive into the, the actual exercises. And um, as I mentioned, unless you want me to go into them, we've got good video documentation on the website about the five that we like to recommend. And we'll make sure we have a direct link to that also. We've been talking with Dr. Ray McClanahan. He is a podiatrist. He is a natural podiatrist. 
I think we've done a great job of explaining why traditional footwear probably isn't the best for long-term health. And I think his message really ties in well with moving to live, which is movement. It's a lifestyle, not an activity. If your feet hurt, you're not going to move that much. Dr. McClanahan, I want to really thank you for taking time after a busy day in the office for talking to Moving to Live. It was awesome to be with you, Ben. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.